Okay, if you can turn to Genesis 25. We are ending today the life of Abraham. No, we're not killing him. But uh, this is the, the passage in which he indeed goes to be with the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but we're ending this series. And uh, next week, uh, in light of Lent and the uh, Day of Resurrection, we'll be doing a series on the Atonement so we have a better grasp uh, of what the Scriptures as a whole say about what happened on the cross and uh, what God was doing there and uh, what He's accomplishing in that whole process. And then after that, we're going to shift a little bit. We're not going to go back to Genesis just yet. Uh, we've been talking about the life of faith through the life of Abraham, and I thought it was important that we, we make a shift from what how we as individuals live this life of faith to how we as a community are meant to live this life of faith. And so we'll be going to the book of James uh, and talking about how this faith that we hold fleshes out in the life of a community in a number of ways. So uh, we'll be doing that. Pretty much until September, because I'll be gone for a bit in the summer. So, uh, so James, my wife will be excited about that. So, anyway, the first part of Genesis 25, we'll be doing uh, one one through eleven. Hear God's word. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian. Ishbak and Shual. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, uh, Letushim, and Leuim. The sons of Midian were Epheth, Ephar, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er, Lahai Roy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, today we uh, say goodbye to Abraham. Thank you for all that you have taught us about faith and about how you relate to people through the life of Abraham. Thank you for the significant role that he played in our salvation. Thank you that he awaits the rest of your people saved by the blood of your Son, that he gazes upon your glory and your majesty. <laughs> Teach us more about death through his death this morning. In the name of your, your Son, who died 
and rose again from the grave. Jesus. Amen. Well, this uh, past Monday night, we had a bit of a deacon's meeting, and one of the things that we did in anticipation of being back in our place is we picked up this sideboard. Uh, and So since we had to go to the church, and since we had to look at these different suggestions that were made, uh, we were poking around the building, particularly in the kitchen, and it was there that we noticed this pipe kind of in the wall, and I'm like, what's the pipe? And I was informed that the building was actually piped for a natural gas, as if we could put a gas stove in there. And so we got in this little discussion about gas stoves and how some of us preferred to cook on gas stoves, and I was one of those people who grew up on a gas stove. And I made made the foolish remark that at least with a gas stove, you can cook when the power goes out. Now, this was based on me growing up. Apparently, since I have grown up, they now put these little safety valves on them so that when the electricity goes out, you can't light them because they didn't want the pilot light to go out and people to be gassed and go to sleep, okay? Never to wake up again. And, uh, and I mentioned in this, you know, that wouldn't be a horrible way to go. <laughs> I could think of lots of ways to die that would be far more difficult and painful and, than this. They, didn't, they sort of agreed with me, although Topher mentioned something about headaches. But I said, you'll be asleep. You won't know. You won't know. The Puritans did something that we very rarely do, and that is they were, they were told often to contemplate their own mortality, to recognize the reality that they are going to die, and that they were to live their life in light of the fact that one day they were going to die. And in our culture, we sort of do the opposite we live in ultimate denial of the fact that we are going to die. We seek to suppress that knowledge almost at every point. We're so focused on living that we don't live in light of our death. We live to avoid our death. Let's talk a bit about that this morning. What does it mean to live in light of our death? The big idea this morning is that God prepares us to meet death through the promise. The first part of this is to prepare for death by receiving God's promise. There's a musician whose work I really, really like, and there's one song that he does that starts off with these words. The news of my impending death came at a really bad time for me. Didn't come so much to Abraham. Didn't come at a bad time. He wasn't so focused on getting his, his life to be at a really sweet spot. Abraham, I think at this point, 175 years, he was ready. <laughs> okay. He knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock to him. Okay. Abraham was ready to die and he was ready to stand before the judge of all the earth, which Hebrews says all of us must do. It is appointed to a man once to die and then to stand before the judge of the earth. Now, Abraham was ready. But so often we find people who aren't ready to do this. One of our dear friends from Florida this week lost her mom. Her mom was not ready to go. And by that, I mean this. She was diagnosed with cancer seven weeks ago. She knew she had it much longer. 
Because when she went to the doctor, it was poking through the skin. That's how long she had had this cancer. And she refused to seek help. She was sort of living in denial of the fact that I am going to die if I don't deal with this. And almost, in some ways, sped to her death as a result. And we can do that. We don't want this to be so, and so we push off any instances that might point us in this direction that might that, that scare us to death, so to speak. But Abraham was not like that, because he knew that the judge of the earth was also his rescuer. He was also his redeemer. He was also his substitute. He was able, so to speak, to, to look down the corridor of time based on the promises God had already given him and rejoice in the day of Jesus, as Jesus says. He knew that a redeemer was coming, and that was his hope. And so he lived in light of that hope. He had received God's promise by faith. And so Abraham faced death as a justified man, as one who was right with God. Just as it said in in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and God credited credited it to him as righteousness. That's one of those ones that doesn't flow out very well, does it? See, Tim Keller gets tongue tied too. I am not the only one. So he he faced death as a justified soul, as a justified person. And so he did not fear condemnation. He did not fear the wrath of God. But what about us? How do we approach death? Do Do we face it as justified people? And that can be one of two things. Have you by faith received that promise? Have you by faith asked Christ to save you, to deliver you from the wrath that is to come, to remove the guilt and the shame, and to give you His righteousness? Have you done that? That's one way in which this can be, that can, that means, that can be taken. The other aspect of that is, are you living in light of your justification? Are you moving forward in your life on the basis of the fact that you are accepted by God with G- by Jesus Christ in His work, or despite the fact that you have faith in Jesus Christ, are you living as if you don't? Are you facing death with fear and trepidation because you are not living it, you're not facing it as one who has a substitute, as one who has borne the curse for you? Okay. Ah. Things too small. Not used to it. Okay. Abraham, again, was not justified by what he did. We'll deal with all that when we get to James chapter 2. But he was justified by trusting God in his promise. And so Jesus was crucified, as we, we, we heard from this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, to take away our sins, to take away the sins of all who believe. And so if we believe, as it says earlier in Hebrews, we need not fear death nor judgment. So again, I ask you, do you have that hope? Are you living in that hope? Or is that something that is incredibly foreign to you? as I speak. To live with this hope 
means, just as we read, we heard from Paul this morning from Philippians, that to live is Christ, meaning that we reveal Christ to the world, but to die is not loss, but gain. Interesting, that language. Because Paul talks about loss later on in that same letter. And he says that he considered everything to be loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He, when, when he looked at this world and everything that he had and everything he possibly could have and all that he enjoyed and all that he looked forward to enjoy, everything he considered loss so that he might know Jesus. Do we think like that? Do we consider our iPods or our iPads loss that we might know Christ? Do we consider that new car loss that we might know Christ? Or that Hawaiian vacation? Or that cruise that I really want to go on one of these days? Do we consider these things loss? Meaning insignificant compared to knowing Him. Not saying we can't have any of those things. But where are they on the list? Is knowing Christ down here and all that stuff up here? Or is it like that? Paul said to die is gain. It is not the, the, the loss of everything I hold dear, but actually it's gaining more of what he held dear. More of what was important to him because he knew Jesus perfectly then when he would die. So if we gain, we gain far more than we lose if we die united to Christ by faith, we gain, in fact, God himself, as it says. And so we will only be prepared to die if we have received God's promise by faith. Second part of this. Prepare for death by acting on God's promise. Don't just receive God's promise, but also act upon God's promise. Abraham was not passive as he faced his impending death. What we see Abraham doing here is settling his affairs. He's getting everything in order, ready for that time in which he will die. It says that Abraham left everything that he had to Isaac. He makes sure that there is clearly only going to be one heir, and that heir is according to the promise. Today, if we were to kind of apply that, this would mean that we would leave a will, <laughs> that we could possibly leave, have life insurance. You know, we've talked a little bit about the trip to Mexico coming up, and some people, you know, oh, man, Mexico, kind of scary, you know, cartels and everything. I go, I die, Amy's okay. I have life insurance. She'll cry for a little while. It'll be all right. She'll probably go. He's gone. I don't have to deal with his sin anymore, okay? Um, I'm prepared so that my family is taken care of if something should happen to me. I think of my, our friend in Flo who's in Florida, but her mother was elsewhere. She doesn't know if her mother left anything. Her mother was a lawyer. 
And she's been digging through the house trying to find something, anything, will, any instructions on what to do. Her mother didn't tell any of the kids like my dad did to me recently. Something happens, this is where it all is, Steve. Go in this closet. This is where the stuff is going to be that you will need to take care of everything that has to get wrapped up. The children don't know. So not only have they, have they lost their mother, but they also don't even know what to do. They don't know what resources she may have already provided for her burial. They don't know. They know nothing. We see this bumper sticker sometimes on the back of cars. Spending my kid's inheritance. And it's meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek and funny. Uh, but it's to me, it comes off as sort of a almost a sick joke. Because that seems to be so contrary to passages like this. Abraham did not run through everything he had. Now, granted, he had a whole lot more than anybody in this room, (laughs) okay? Uh, He had Charlie Sheen kind of money, you know, and he he didn't have, he didn't have Charlie Sheen's problems, so uh, he still had Charlie Sheen money when it was all said and done, okay? But still, not all of us have this money to spare. However, most of us in this room have, have something of a spiritual legacy don't we? Are we passing that on? We may not have have physical material riches, but are we preparing with our children with spiritual riches that they might enjoy long after we, we go? Are you passing on a living faith to your children? Back to Abraham and Isaac. There was this little complicating factor that arose. In fact, the the passage starts off with the complicating factor, and that is that at some point, we don't know when, Abraham took another wife by the name of Keturah. Now, what's interesting about this whole aspect here is that Moses is not going in chronological order. So it's not like Sarah died and he took a wife. That may have been it, but we don't know. He may have taken this wife long before Sarah died. Why do I say that it's out of chronological order? Well, there's no mention yet of Isaac. That's sorry. There is mention, lots of mention of Isaac, but there's no mention of Jacob and Esau. However, when you, when you look at everything, Jacob and Esau were 15 when Abraham passed away. So there's no mention of his, of those grandchildren in this text yet. And so this is taken, Moses wasn't worried like we are sometimes about chronology. Okay? His point is what shapes the information that he brings in. And right now he brings this information in because of his point. Alright? Abraham had other sons by a concubine. Now the Old Testament law, before we give Moses is a really hard time here. Uh, the, the law of Moses, which hadn't even come yet, uh, tolerated polygamy while protecting women. That sounds strange to us, doesn't it? It should sound strange to you. <clears throat> if I started talking about, yeah, Amy and I are going to add another wife, uh, this should be a problem, right? Uh, I don't think Amy would be too hip on the idea of adding another wife. But Exodus 21 If he marries another woman, 
he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. So if I was to take another wife, I could not deprive Amy of her food and clothing and marital rights. If I was back then. Back now? Can't do it. Okay. If he does not provide the original wife with these three things, she is free, she is to go free without any payment of money. So basically, this is where, where Paul gets that idea of desertion in 1 Corinthians 17, uh, 7. If the husband stops providing what he is supposed to provide under the basis of the law, then he has essentially deserted his wife and she is free. Now, polygamy was not God's plan. Polygamy happened often in the Old Testament. Just like we see slavery taking place in the Old Testament, and Abraham owned slaves as well. Okay. These, these, these issues sometimes cause people lots of grief. If you go look at blogs, you'll see it every once in a while. There will be a post about how some Christian of the past, some famous Christian of the past, owned a slave. And people will, will lose their, how could they be a Christian and do this? And people will look at our day and they'll go, how could you as Christians have done, I don't even know what. Okay. We must be charitable to the sins of our forefathers in this sense. Though they may be great and they are sinful, they are not sufficient to destroy the work of grace in a human heart. The work of Jesus trumps cultural sin, no matter what that is. Racism in our day is still a heinous sin, but the blood of Jesus trumps racism. Abortion is a cultural sin in our, in our country and in many others. But guess what? The blood of Jesus trumps that cultural sin. Abraham is a sinner saved by grace. He, the scriptures, he's not even close to perfect. That is meant to give hope to people like you and me who deal with far greater imperfections and sins. So, remember, justified by faith, receiving God's grace. So he's got himself this situation, so to speak, where he's got these other grandchildren. He's already sent away Ishmael, and he does the same thing. Now, he provides for them in giving them gifts. We don't know how large those gifts are. I doubt it's a five spot. Okay? He had lots of money. I'm sure he was very generous to his many, many children, his many sons. I'm sure he gave them portions of his flock and he gave them some material wealth before he sent them on the way. It wasn't 25 bucks and have a nice day. Okay, He sent them away with gifts. He provided for them, yet he did disinherit them. He said, this is all you're getting because Isaac gets the rest. Okay. His, from our perspective, perhaps, or, or to the world's perspective, Abraham's superficial favoritism was rooted in God's promise to him, Isaac. And so what we see here in Abraham 
is a man who is not an authority unto himself. But we see a man who was under the authority of God and seeks to, as best as he can, by faith, to live under God's authority. I think one of the not-so-nice things about Facebook is I occasionally see all of, all of these uh, quotes from the cult of Oprah. Okay? And if you're not familiar with the cult of Oprah, that's probably good, although you might be blind to the cult of Oprah. I don't know. But... Part of the, it, it's a very American religion in the sense of you become your own authority. You are the one who brings about the future that you want. Okay. Uh, the, one of the nice quotes I read this week was that um, you are to follow your own gut. And it's the moment when you start to question that and ask for counsel that you have departed from the way. And I'm like, yeah, let's see. Proverbs. Um, many counselors. Solomon sort of disagreed with that. And not only did Solomon disagree with that, the Lord God himself disagreed with that. So there's this, there's this idea that, that is prevalent in our culture that we are answerable to no one and we resist the idea of authority except they give us lots of money. We'll, we'll take authority from our boss. Okay. We resist authority, but Abraham was someone who lived under authority. God's authority. So should we live under God's authority. And he, and he, this is seen in this, it's Isaac. It's about Isaac. Abraham dies, and here we see, for the, probably the, the last time, Isaac and Ishmael together. They probably hadn't, I wonder if they'd even seen each other since Ishmael was sent away. It's hard to know. God leaves these blanks for us. But they, they had a place to bury him. The field that Abraham had bought by faith. They didn't have to sit and wonder, where are we going to put his body? They knew exactly where they were going to put his body. Because Abraham was proactive. He acted on God's promise. Again, that negative example of my friend, not sure what in the world to do. Is there a burial plot? They don't know. Do they have to buy one? Abraham took care of all that. And so this text ends with, God blessed his son Isaac. Moses wants us to understand that though we don't always understand what or why Abraham did all that he did, God was pleased and Abraham did the right thing. Just as God had blessed Abraham according to Genesis 12, now it has gone to Isaac and he's going to make his name great. And he's going to be the father of many nations himself. It's been transferred. It's been passed on. Isaac is receiving the spiritual and earthly blessings of the promise. He is the one. He is the one through whom the rescuer is going to come, through whom the redeemer is going to come. He's the guy that the story is going to shift to.
And so we will only be prepared by acting on God's promise by faith while there is time. Last part of this is that faith receives what was promised at death. If you look back in Genesis 15.15, you find this promise given to him. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. You'll notice that Moses uses some of the same exact language. When did Abraham die? At a good old age. God kept his promise to Abraham. He lived to this ripe old age, but that's that's not it. Moses also wants us to understand that death is not the end. Some people approach the the Old Testament as if it says nothing on the afterlife. Okay, Now, the Old Testament's a little bit fuzzy on the afterlife, but it's not as fuzzy as some people want you to think. We see right here in this text that there is an afterlife because Abraham was gathered to his people. Where was he buried? Where his wife was at Mamre. Where are his ancestors buried? It ain't there. (laughs) Haran. Ur. Okay, so this is not referring to his burial. This, you know, this is something else. Moses is indicating to us that Abraham, though dead to us, is alive to God. And not only that, he is alive with them. Okay? He is with all of his ancestors and others who also called on the name of the Lord. And so he is with Adam and Eve. He is with the first martyr, Abel. He is with the one man who never tasted death. Well, one of the two at that point. Enoch. Elijah hadn't happened yet. He's with Noah. He is with Seth. And I think he's with his own father, who probably repented of his worship of the moon god, had worshipped the Lord. He is with them, assembled before the throne, gathered together with them. That's the whole idea as well. Assembly. They're assembled and gathered before the throne of God. And the New Testament gives us these pictures in Revelation of God's people assembled there in worship. This is not soul sleep. The soul is alive, it is well, and it's worshiping in the presence of God. Think for a moment. Okay. What do you stand in awe of? What can arrest your attention? What can you look at or listen to or admire for hours upon end? Any of you have any of those things? I'd say a sunset, but they're so fleeting. They're so beautiful. But they flee. Going to the mountain sometimes. Caught with, I just, just stopped in my tracks and caught up in the beauty of it. I haven't been in the Grand Canyon yet. I imagine I'll probably just sit there for a while going, 
that is part of what it will be like to gaze upon the resurrected Christ. You will be stopped in your tracks. There will be nothing that will distract you. You will be compelled to gaze upon Him and go, awesome. We don't think about that, do we? That's part of the gain Paul talked about. Think, have any of you been separated from the one you love for a long time? I know Karen has. Months on end. If some of you have had loved ones in the military, you're separated for maybe a year or so. Some of you have experienced that. You know what that's like. And suddenly you see them. Does not everything else stop? Doesn't everything else sort of become unimportant? But the beloved, that is what it will be like when we pass away and we behold Jesus if we have love for him now in our hearts. That should captivate us. That should seize us. That should sustain us until that day. Isn't that what you... I can't wait. I remember when Amy was in China, you know, for Jaden's sake, we were counting down the days and she couldn't read a calendar and we had this chain. And every morning when Jaden woke up, we took the one link of the chain off. That much closer to mommy being home. That much closer to Eli being here. Okay? That's what it's like. But not only that, we shall no longer be capable of sin. As we sang earlier, saved to sin no more. At death, it comes. You will no longer be weary with your own sinfulness with your own impatience, with your own anger, with your own greed, with your own snipiness, with your own whatever. And here's the good part. No one else will be plagued by your whatever it is. Okay? Because God will fulfill those promises that we have received at death. The only thing that will await us is the resurrected body at the coming of our Lord. Well, in the new Jerusalem, which descends from the heavens, but we'll get there. And so death comes to all. As The scripture is clear on this. The scriptures also offer us a great hope for life in the presence of God forever. This hope is available only through faith in the unique, the obedient, the crucified, and the resurrected Jesus Christ. It doesn't just change the afterlife, but it is meant to change how we live in this life. Let's pray. Father, um, death uh, often seems so hopeless, and I know some people here have have lost loved ones in recent months. And there is a sense in which 
It fills our sinful hearts with despair and fear and denial. It is very difficult for us to grasp some of these things. And so grant us the faith to behold Jesus Christ and to have hope uh, before and after death. And we praise you that he has come to destroy the fear of death. He has come to remove the sting of death and to give us life and life abundant. And this life and the life that is to come. And it is the name of Jesus, our living hope, we pray. Amen.